Campfire Classics is a classic literature podcast. However, your hosts will occasionally use not-so-classy language and immature humor to describe very mature situations. As such, listener discretion is advised. Hi, I'm Ken Sandberg. And I'm Emily Bosco. Welcome to Campfire Classics, where we try to read those books that look really good on your shelf. And have an excellent tubular time. <laughs> wow, is it 1996 already? Yeah. <laughs> no, I'm just... Today, today I surf. Today, in this moment, I'm a surfer. <laughs> All right, great. What's bringing on the surfer vibes? <laughs> you is know... Is it this, the bright, sunny weather and the crashing waves outside <laughs> your window? Well, I, I do live very close to the Long Island Sound, but it is snowing today, so not the weather. <laughs> Although I did recently watch Licorice Pizza, mm-hmm. which takes place in California, and I don't know. There might there might be something... I, I've, just, I've just had California on my mind since I watched that, so maybe that's why I'm like... Rad, man. She's got some lingering surfer vibes. I think so. I think so. Even though neither of the main characters are particularly that way, but I don't know. It's hard to explain what goes on in my brain sometimes. That's that's a very specific, like the only movie character who has ever made me feel particularly surfer is either uh, Spicoli from Fast Times at Ridgemont High. Oh, yeah. That's Um, Sean Penn, right? Sean Penn. Yeah. Uh, or any character Keanu Reeves has ever played. He's always like, whoa. (laughs) Which is why I also love when he does Shakespeare, because he's very like, thou shalt not dishonor me much. Like, it's so, (laughs) it is, bless him, he is trying so hard, but it doesn't quite work. But it doesn't matter, because I love Keanu Reeves. He's a very dear, wonderful man. Everybody does. (laughs) It's hard not to. Um, So, correct me if I'm wrong, but you have not seen the TV series Slings and Arrows. No, I have not. Okay. I've been told many a time that I need to watch it. You, you really should. I really do. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's a TV show about a Shakespeare, uh, festival in Canada that is heavily modeled off the Stratford Shakespeare festival. Mm-hmm. Um, many of the people involved with making the show had worked at Stratford before. And in the first season, the sort of gimmick is that they bring this American movie star up to Canada to play Hamlet in their production of Hamlet. Oh, boy. And this is a storyline loosely based on what really happened to Keanu (gasps) because he was his agent was like, all right, you're coming up. You're you're like getting movie star credentials, but people are kind of they don't think of you as an actor. Mm -hmm. So we're going to send you up to Canada to give you some like real acting credibility. He played Hamlet. He played Hamlet in like Vancouver or something. No way. Yeah. Apparently it was gloriously okay. I'm sure. Yeah. But (laughs) listen, anyone who does that fucking role, I'm like, you are a star. I don't care how good you were at it. That's just to learn the words in itself is Herculean. Yeah. It's it's a bear just to slog through. Oh my God. That's exciting. Uh, Well, it worked because I just, his credibility, his, uh, I don't know. I respect him a little bit more as an actor now that I know he's done that. Yeah, yeah just, <laughs> I was only thinking of it. his little part in um in the the Kenneth Tame Branagh of, Yes, the movie. Yes, exactly. Yeah, where he's um yeah. Don John. Yes, John exactly. the Bastard. Yeah. 
um, which is a great movie. And dear listener, if you are not familiar with it or not familiar with the play Much Ado About Nothing, go check out. Oh God, it's so good. That version from like nineteen ninety eight or ninety nine or something like that. It's so sexy. It must have <laughs> been. It must have been filmed before they broke up. I would assume. It was before they broke up. Yeah, because the chemistry and between them is like just I'm, electric. I'm reasonably certain it was before The Matrix. Yeah. Yeah. Which was 99. So. Wow, I'm old. 1999. Mm-hmm. Mm. Oh, boy. Welcome to the club. <laughs> Thank you very much. <laughs> um, speaking of great actors, uh, Will Smith knocked the shit out of Chris Rock. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. I had to acknowledge it. Don't worry, listener. We're not going to dwell on it. <laughs> yeah. It's all social media wants to talk about. Well, I'm sure there's, um, yeah, I'm sure but, every podcast that is even slightly about current events or like pop culture is going to have a whole, a whole opinion section yep. on it. But. And I'm, uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm not, I'm not coming down on either side. Mm. My thought is, um, a snarky rich comedian told mm-hmm. a mediocre joke and an angry rich guy hit him in the face. That's, now let's move on. That's exactly what happened. Like that's, yeah. that's what happened. That's exactly what happened. Um, and like, yeah. it was like a 30 year old reference. It, um, yeah. That's what struck me about it was that, you know, I don't know if to me, it seemed like it would have been, I, I'm, I'm going to give a little opinion, but just, I don't know. Cause I find it kind of interesting. Mm-hmm. It, if he had like, looked at Jada Pinkett Smith and said something like, you know, oh, damn, girl, like you look like Uncle Fester or something like if he if he had if there had been more mean spiritedness behind, like if he had been making fun of the fact that she has a shaved head now, Mm -hmm. it would have made more sense for Will Smith to like go up there and defend his girl. He literally just like looked at her smiling and was like, G.I. Jane, too, which I was just like. The joke there is simply Demi Moore had a shaved head for that movie and now you have a shaved head. So you'll clearly do the second one. Like it's not even a, I don't know. It just didn't, it didn't even seem like a mean spirited joke at all. It was simply commenting on like, you have a shaved head period. Like it was, you know, it didn't, it didn't even seem to have an opinion about the fact that she has a shaved head. And if it did have one, it seemed to be positive because he was like, Hey girl, like star in this movie. I don't know. It just seemed to me like more eye roll worthy than like get my wife's name out of your fucking mouth worthy. But you know, I don't know. My favorite (laughs) response to the entire thing so far has been, okay, I know this isn't the point, but GI Jane two starring Jada Pinkett Smith, who's working on the script. Bro, I would watch the (laughs) shit out of it. (laughs) But, but you know, I, I do have to say too, that being said, I do have family members with alopecia and I know it is an incredibly difficult and emotionally taxing condition to have. And like, it, it is not a joking matter. So like, I do also understand why he was offended. And, you know, I'm not trying to make light of that condition at all. I've like, I've like seen what it has done to family members and it's really tough. It just was, it was just surprising to me. Yeah. The, the magnitude of that reaction, but yeah. I guess that's everybody. I and like, it I don't know. staged at first. Did you? A lot like of people watching, did. Watching yeah. the video because yeah. I, uh. I saw him do it and I was like, well, he kind of like there was a lot of wind up. Uh-huh. There was a real clean follow through uh-huh. like, like a stage hand, slap. Yeah. His hand even did a nice rotation to like <laughs> to show the, right. the open hand on the other side. And like, so it looked like a really like solid hit. It was very clean, yeah. well presented. And I was watching it thinking, ooh, that was a nice hit. Oh, 
Chris Rock didn't sell the reaction enough. Right. You're like, who's the fight choreographer for this production of the Oscars? <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah. But, yeah. but no, like really, it felt like he didn't, yeah. he didn't react enough. Like I'm thinking if Will Smith hauled off and hit me that hard, I would be on the ground. Yeah, I know. He barely even stumbled. <laughs> I was like, he really kept his cool. It was pretty wild. Um. But anyway. anyway. I mean, the Oscars are always a circus. It yeah. just was for a different reason this year. But, you know. At least no one's going to call it boring this year. That's true. That's very true. <laughs> and I'm very happy for Ariana DeBose because she was just so good in West Side Story. She was just so good. Yeah. Well, and so 60, 60 years ago, uh, Rita won for the same role. It's exactly the 60 year anniversary. It's, it's 60 years ago. Oh, yeah. oh, my God. That brings me such joy. <laughs> if you haven't seen the new one, you got to go out and see it because, oh, it's emotional and wonderful. It's so good. So, listener. Welcome to Campfire Classics. Apparently, <laughs> an Oscars fan cast. <laughs> yeah, no, not an Oscar or, or recap an podcast. actor, an actor debate cast. I'm not. <laughs> I don't know. I'm not really sure one way or the other. But um, welcome to the podcast. This is, in fact, a comedy literature podcast where we take turns doing cold reads of short stories that we find that belong. To the public domain. Uh, we do that because it's the best way to find stories that we're allowed to read without getting in legal trouble. Yay. And along the way, we sort of play Mystery Science Theater 3000. We um, laugh at accidental penis jokes. We look up words that we don't understand. And we just generally try to have a good time and not take ourselves too seriously. And this week, Emily has a story that I'm going to read. But before we begin, she's going to give us a little bit of context, a little bit of background with a section we like to call Fun Facts. Yes, sir. Very fun facts, actually, this time. Um, so these are extra fun. All right. So I was feeling like we we have been having a lot of ooky spooky on this podcast lately. A this lot of true. scary stuff. Lots of ghost stories. Last week really was terrifying. Um, <laughs> that you up, huh? And well, and well done to you because the music that you put underneath my subpar read made it just great. <laughs> I was like, wow. <laughs> um, so this week we're going to switch gears and we're going to read from a children's book. Oh, good. Yay. We're going to be wholesome. Um. So Edith Nesbitt is our author this week, and she was an English author who is best remembered for her book, Five Children and It, but she was also prolific and influential in the children's literature genre just in generally, and she directly inspired many of the world's best children's stories like Mary Poppins, The Chronicles of Narnia, and the Harry Potter franchise. Um, and she has actually been credited as the like unofficial inventor of the children's adventure story. Very which is, cool. Yeah, which is pretty, yeah. Yeah. Pretty uh, big honor. Uh, shout out to my brother, Craig, who has guest hosted an episode of this podcast. He actually recommended this author to us a while back, and I think we may have done a short story by her before. Oh, okay. I don't remember, but uh, he recommended uh, Five Children and It. There you go. Can you read that for copyright reasons or is it still? It's not a copyright issue. It's that all of those stories, like the short stories are more like chapters. They're very interconnected. So oh, to yeah, just yeah, pick yeah. one and do it would feel kind of weird if I were going to, if we were going to do that book. That, that could be a separate be a, podcast. It'd be a series. Right. That could be a separate podcast. You we've, could just have one where you read an entire book chapter by chapter. We've, we've talked about doing something like that, yeah. um, specifically with uh, like an Agatha Christie mystery, yeah. do, do one of the novels. That right. Are, you know. Or if you did it, I mean, as a nanny, I know that many moms would be happy to just have like a basically a, a children's audiobook 
to put on that like has some fun banter in there, you know? Yeah. Make them feel like they're falling asleep with friends. <laughs> we'd, we'd have to, we'd have to do the <clears throat> G rated version. Oh of yeah, 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 yeah. Totally. <laughs> we would, uh, we'd make it kitty friendly. Yeah. Um, so uh, even Noel Coward, who is actually not really mostly known for his child-friendly humor, <laughs> was a great admirer of her work. Um, now, it makes sense that she was sort of prolific in the childhood adventure genre because her childhood was extremely tumultuous. So her dad dies before she's four years old, and her sister is in poor health, which means they have to move around a lot, which I feel like is a running theme. Like, I feel like in all the fun facts I've read, the author has had a pretty migrant childhood. Migrant it gives childhood. them a lot to write about I one think. dead parent yeah they, they yeah all, they all live the lives of a disney princess yeah exactly i guess yeah i don't know um i guess they do say you know hardship makes artists so i'm like if you have a pretty standard childhood what do you have to write about you know? <laughs> um oh no i had a very happy childhood <laughs> oh no <laughs> well there's a reason you're an actor not a writer yes yeah, true exactly <laughs> um so uh they're moving around a lot now, her sister eventually does die, her sister who was in poor health, when Edith, when Edith is only 12, which is very sad. So then Edith and her mom um, go and settle down in Kent in England for three years. And this location inspires a lot of Edith, Edith's writing, including one of her most popular stories, The Railway Children. Not to be confused with The Boxcar Children, which I at first thought it was. And I was like, oh, those books, I know those. Like, that should be what she's best known for. But then I was like, oh, no, I think maybe The Boxcar Children sort of ripped off the railway children or i don't know which came first i don't know anything about the railway children yeah i Um, don't know but i mean if i I seem to remember edith is like late 19th early 20th century and the Mm. boxcar children and i think she's english oh you said kent england yes and the boxcar children is an american book series that was coming out in like the 50s oh okay okay so So, coincidence we'll call that coincidence it's also just a great premise. You can have them like go from, you know, town to town doing yeah. mischievous stuff. <laughs> um, so uh, Edith's personal slash romantic life is pretty much totally insane. So when she's 18, she meets this guy named Hubert Bland. <laughs> who, Good name. Yeah, who in spite of a very bland name and being a bank teller actually proves to be anything but. So they get married three years into their relationship. And at this point, Edith is already seven months pregnant, which in 1880, when they were getting married, was a very large scandal. Ooh. Yep. I'm sure, you know, if her father had been alive, shotguns would have been involved in that wedding. <laughs> <laughs> but... Even though she's seven months pregnant and they're getting married, they don't move in together because he's still living with his mother, which I I don't know what excuse he gives for that to her. But there's speculation among her friends and family that he's only living with his mother so he can maintain a little bit of freedom from his new wife, which makes sense because later Edith finds out that Mr. Bland has another pregnant fiance just <laughs> running around out there. <laughs> Which is a little bit of an ego blow to Edith, certainly. But then um, a few years later, it gets even better because she finds out that a third woman is pregnant by her husband, Hubert. And it's her best friend, Alice Hotson. So (laughs) her best friend is pregnant with her husband's baby, who she also has a baby with. And the husband has a baby with a third, I don't know, other woman whose name I don't know. Okay, so I feel like this is all happening. There's there's an alliterative. <laughs> there is an alliterative. Oof, that's hard to say. Alliterative. There is an alliterative joke in there about Hotson Ho. Oh yeah, She's, yeah, yeah. Hotson. Yeah. 
and Hubert's babies. Hubert's babies with Hudson, yeah. with the whole Hudson. I, I don't know. know. I don't know. But this uh, humor bland gets he fucking gets around. All right. Okay, so so this is all happening, right? Right. But I haven't even gotten to the best part. Um Edith has already agreed to raise her best friend's baby and to have the baby uh like like to take in the baby and then have her best friend Alice work with like work in her house as a housekeeper. But she agrees to all this before she knows that the baby was fathered by her own husband. <laughs> Okay, so her bestie and her bestie's baby, which is also her husband's baby, are living in her home. And Edith's just like, okay, like I rise above. It's unbelievable. She's just like, this child is mine. Like I adopt this child as my own. My best, my former bestie is going to be my housekeeper and we're all just going to live in harmony. Okay. Lord. Insane. Okay. Okay. Yes. So the friend stays with them as a housekeeper and a secretary. And everything is, you know, hunky-dory. They have a fight, but she agrees to let them stay. 13 years later, the friend gets pregnant by her husband again. (laughs) So now Edith has two adopted children fathered by her husband with her best friend living in her home. And she has also had two more kids by her husband. So she has three of her own children and two adopted ones. This is a sitcom. It's absolutely insane. This is an incredible sitcom. And I mean, credit to this woman. She has no ill will towards these adopted kids, even though they are the product of her husband's affairs with her former best friend, or I don't know, maybe still best friend if she's very forgiving. Because the book that I mentioned before, Five Children and It, is dedicated to her five children, which is her three children and her two adopted children that are in her house, which is so, so crazy. Um, and, uh, she, and she also dedicated that book to her adopted son, John. And then this other book that she wrote, the book of dragons, which is actually the book that today's story comes from. She cool. dedicated to her adopted daughter, Rosamond. So like both of those books were dedicated to the kids that were not biologically hers, which All is right. very beautiful and big of her. Um, and the daughter Rosamond also became a writer later in her life. And, uh, Edith collaborated with her on her book, Cat Tales. So that's like a mother daughter collaboration, which is Cute. very sweet. I know. And I mean, uh, bless her, Edith and, and Hubert Bland stay together until he dies in 1914 through all that. And then after that, she marries a ferryboat captain, which is very cool. <laughs> I know three years later and they are together until Edith dies in 1924 at the age of 65, probably from lung cancer because she was notoriously a very heavy smoker. So I she'll mean, get you. That's that a life. Get you. Kids, just say no. Keep right. Just say no. You don't want to leave behind your five children. No. <laughs> um, so, as I mentioned before, this week you will be reading a short story from the book titled The Book of Dragons. Exciting. And the story is called The Book of Beasts. So, let's start this fire. The Book of Beasts by Edith Nesbitt. He happened to be building a palace when the news came, and he left all the bricks kicking about the floor for Nurse to clear up. But then the news was rather remarkable news. You see, there was a knock at the front door and voices talking downstairs, and Lionel thought it was the man come to see about the gas, which had not been allowed to be lighted since the day when Lionel made a swing by tying his skipping rope to a gas bracket. (laughs) (laughs) Nearly blew up the house. Whoops. (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah, that sounds like regular kid stuff. <laughs> yep. Oh, Lionel. <laughs> and then, quite suddenly, Nurse came in and said, Master Lionel, dear, they've come to fetch you to go to be king. Mm then she made haste to change his smock and to wash his face and hands and brush his hair and all the time she was doing it lionel kept wriggling and fidgeting and saying oh don't nurse i assume he's a very little boy cute. <laughs> oh don't nurse and i'm sure my eyes are quite nope <laughs> i'm sure my ears are quite clean or never mind my hair it's all right and That'll do. <laughs> You're going on as if you was going to be an eel instead of a king, said Nurse. <laughs> the minute Nurse let go for a moment, Lionel bolted off without waiting for his clean handkerchief. And in the drawing room, there were two very grave-looking gentlemen in red robes with fur and gold coronets with velvet sticking up out of the middle like the cream in the very expensive jam tarts. Ooh, that sounds good. Mm-hmm. Mm. They bowed low to Lionel, and the gravest one said, Sire, your great-great-great-great-great-grandfather, <laughs> the king of this country, is dead, and now you have got to come and be king. That's a big generation leap. Yeah, I'm like, wait, what happened to all the other male heirs in his family? They're all dead? It He's was next? one, two, three, four, yeah. five, six, seven generations all died oh at God. once. What, did they all go off to war? It was a family picnic, and the potato salad was just really bad. Wow. <laughs> we are never letting Aunt Susie cook again. <laughs> It's a heavy burden she carries. Yes, please, sir, said Lionel. When does it begin? You will be crowned this afternoon, said the grave gentleman, who was not quite so grave-looking as the other. Would you like me to bring nurse? Or what time would you like me to be fetched? And hadn't I better put on my velvet suit with the lace collar, said Lionel, <laughs> who had often been out to tea. Your nurse will be removed to the palace later. No, never mind about changing your suit. The royal robes will cover all that up. The grave gentleman led the way to a coach with eight white horses, which was drawn up in front of the house where Lionel lived. It was number seven on the left-hand side of the street as you go up. <laughs> Lionel ran upstairs at the last minute, and he kissed Nurse and said, Thank you for washing me. I wish I'd let you do the other ear. No, there's no time now. Give me the hanky. Goodbye, Nurse. Goodbye, Ducky, said <laughs> Nurse. Be a good little king now and say please and thank you and remember to pass the cake to the little girls and don't have more than two helps of anything. <laughs> So off went Lionel to be made a king. This is activating my maternal instincts in a big <laughs> way. This is absolutely, like, painfully adorable. <laughs> Ducky. He had never expected to be a king any more than you have, so it was all quite new to him. So new that he had never even thought of it. 
and as the coach went through the town, he had to bite his tongue to be quite sure it was real, because if his tongue was real, it showed he wasn't dreaming. Mm -hmm. That's sound logic. Yeah, yeah. Half an hour before, he had been building with bricks in the nursery, and now... The streets were all fluttering with flags. Every window was crowded with people waving handkerchiefs and scattering flowers. There were scarlet soldiers everywhere along the pavements, and all the bells of all the churches were ringing like mad, and like a great song to the music of their ringing, he heard thousands of people shouting, Long live Lionel! Long live our little king! He was a little sorry at first that he had not put on his best clothes, but he soon forgot to think about that. If he had been a girl, he would very likely have bothered about it the whole time. <laughs> hey now. I mean, it's, it, it might not be, it, it's it's a, um, a generalization, but yeah, I probably would have been fussing about my clothes. <laughs> hey, I'm just reading it. A woman wrote this. So. <laughs> true, true. If it's, if it's a sexist generalization, <laughs> that's not on me. You're right. Um, that would be the sort of outdated and anachronistic thing we often comment on here at Campfire Classics. It's true. Thank you for joining us for this cutting commentary <laughs> on the politics of yesteryear. Oh, yeah. <laughs> And as they went along, the grave gentlemen, who were the chancellor and the prime minister, explained the things which Lionel did not understand. I thought we were a republic, said Lionel. I'm sure there hasn't been a king for some time. Sire, your great-great-great-great-great-grandfather's death happened when my grandfather was a little boy, said the prime minister. Oh, okay. Oh, wait. So why is he just now being summoned the boy king? And since then, your loyal people have been saving up to buy you a crown. Oh. So much a week, you know, according to people's means. Sixpence a week for those who have first-rate pocket money, down to half a penny a week from those who haven't so much. You know, it's the rule that the crown must be paid for by the people. But... <laughs> Hadn't my great-great-however-much-it-was-grandfather a crown? Yes, but he sent it to be tinned over for fear of vanity, and he had had all the jewels taken out and sold them to buy books. He was a strange man. A very good king he was, but he had his faults. He was fond of books. <laughs> Oh, what a fault. <laughs> <laughs> we don't know anything about that here at Campfire Classics. What a terrible king. <clears throat> Almost with his last breath, he sent the crown to be tinned, and he never lived to pay the tinsmith's bill. Here the prime minister wiped away a tear, and just mm. then the carriage stopped and Lionel was taken out of the carriage to be crowned. Being crowned is much more tiring work than you would suppose, and by the time it was over and Lionel had worn the royal robes for an hour or two and had had his hand kissed by everybody whose business it was to do it, he was quite worn out and was very glad to get into the palace nursery. <laughs> Nurse was there, 
and tea was ready. Seedy cake and plummy cake and jam and hot buttered toast and the prettiest china with red and gold and blue flowers on it and real tea and as many cups of it as you liked. Oh my god, that sounds amazing. After a long day of king business, just go have a feast with your nanny. That's great. (laughs) It's good to be king, baby. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) After tea, Lionel said... I think I should like a book. Will you get me one, nurse? Bless the child, said nurse. You don't suppose you've lost the use of your legs with just being a king? Run along, do, and get your books yourself. Oh, yes. Good for her. (laughs) We're not going to have a spoiled king running around. So Lionel went down into the (laughs) library. The prime minister and the chancellor were there, and when Lionel came in, they bowed very low and were beginning to ask Lionel most politely what on earth he was coming bothering for now when Lionel cried out, Oh, what a world full of books! Are they yours? They are yours, your majesty, answered the chancellor. They were the property of the late king, your great, great... Yes, I know, Lionel interrupted. (laughs) Well, I shall read them all. I love to read. I'm so glad I learned to read. If I might venture to advise, your majesty, said the prime minister, who I have unfortunately made sound exactly like the chancellor... I it's, it's okay. The, the boy's voice is so good that you just, <laughs> just focus on that one. The chancellor and the prime minister are basically interchangeable. They're anyway. just old, yeah, just old dudes. Yeah. Two old grave looking guys. Um, if I might... Adve- Beautiful. Beautiful. If I might venture to advise your majesty, said the prime minister, I should not read these books. Your great... Yes, said Lionel quickly. He was a very good king. Oh, yes, really a very superior king in his way, but he was a little, well, strange. Mad? asked Lionel cheerfully. No, no, both the gentlemen said, sincerely shocked. Not (laughs) mad, but if I may express it so, he was uh, too clever by half, and I should not like a little king of mine to have anything to do with his books. Lionel looked puzzled. Hmm. Uh, The fact is, the chancellor went on, twisting his red beard in an agitated way. Your great... Go on, said Lionel. Was called a wizard. (gasps) You're a wizard, Harry. You're a hairy wizard. (laughs) But he wasn't? Of course not. A most worthy king was your great... I see... I love that he cuts him off every time. I know, every time. But I wouldn't touch his books. Just this one, cried Lionel, laying his hands on the cover of a great brown book that lay on the study table. It had gold patterns on the brown leather and gold clasps with turquoises and rubies in the twists of them and gold corners so that the leather should not wear out too quickly. I must look at this one, Lionel said, for on the back, in big letters, it read, The Book of Beasts. The Chancellor said, Don't be a silly little king, but Lionel had got the gold clasps undone, (laughs) and he opened the first page, and there was a beautiful butterfly, all red and brown and yellow and blue, so beautifully painted that it looked as if it were alive. There! 
there, said Lionel. Isn't that lovely? Why? But as he spoke, the beautiful butterfly fluttered its many colored wings on the yellow old page of the book and flew up and out of the window. (gasps) Well, said the prime minister as soon as he could speak from the lump of wonder that had got into his throat and tried to choke him. That's magic, that is. But before he had spoken, the king had turned the next page, and there was a shining bird, complete and beautiful, with every blue feather of him. Under him was written, Blue Bird of Paradise, and while the king gazed enchanted at the charming picture, the blue bird fluttered his wings on the yellow page and spread them and flew out of the book. (laughs) Then the prime minister snatched the book away from the king and shut it up on the blank page where the bird had been and put it on a very high shelf. And the chancellor gave the king a good shaking and said, You're a naughty, disobedient little king, and was very angry indeed. I don't see that I've done any harm, said Lionel. He hated being shaken. Well, yeah. Yeah, I'm like, you should be like off with his head. You're the king now. (laughs) Oh, jeez. He hated being shaken, as all boys do. He would much rather have been slapped. Oh, boy. (laughs) Okay. All right. You should hire Will Smith as your chancellor. Oh, snap. Topical. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) You're quick. Look at me being barely clever enough to breathe. (laughs) Hey, I didn't think of it. (laughs) It was a little on the nose. It was a little on the nose is all I'm saying. So was the slap. Oh, that would hurt. I know. I actually don't know if that's correct, but it was in the on the face. Oh no, no, no! It was good. Right? It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how accurate it was. That was good. Thank you. Thank you. That was good. <laughs> no harm," said the chancellor, in the same voice I've been using because I can't do a Will Smith impersonation. Ah, <laughs> uh, but what do you know about it? That's the question. How do you know what might have been on the next page? A snake, or a worm, or a centipede, or a revolutionist, or something like that? (laughs) Well, I'm sorry if I vexed you, said Lionel. Come, let's kiss and be friends. So he kissed the prime minister, and they settled down for a nice quiet game of knots and crosses, (laughs) while the chancellor went to add up his accounts. Oh, God, it's so wholesome. I also just love that to the chancellor, of all the slimy, creepy, crawly, disgusting things in the world, it's worms, centipedes, snakes, and revolutionists. Yeah, yeah. You can't have anyone fighting against the power. Right, right. Um, I like that the king's solution to this was, I'm sorry, let's make out. Yeah. <laughs> oh, so cute. Okay, now that we're done, you want to play tic-tac-toe? But when Lionel was in bed, he could not sleep for thinking of the book. And when the full moon was shining with all her might and light, he got up and crept down to the library and climbed up and got the Book of Beasts. An adventure. He took it outside to the terrace where the moonlight was as bright as day, and he opened the book and saw the empty pages with Butterfly and Blue Bird of Paradise underneath. And then he turned the next page. 
there was some sort of red thing sitting under a palm tree, and under it was written, Dragon. The dragon did not move, and the king shut up the book rather quickly and went back to bed. But the next day, he wanted another look. So he took the book out into the garden, and when he undid the clasps with the rubies and the turquoises, the book opened all by itself at the picture with dragon underneath. And the sun shone full on the page, and then, quite suddenly, a great red dragon came out of the book and spread its vast scarlet wings and flew away across the garden to the far hills, and Lionel was left with the empty page before him, for the page was quite empty, except for the green palm tree and the yellow desert, and the little streaks of red where the paintbrush had gone outside of the pencil outline of the red dragon. Oh my god. And then Lionel felt that he had indeed done it. (laughs) He had not been king 24 hours, and already he had let (laughs) loose a red dragon to worry his faithful subjects' lives out. And they had been saving up so long to buy him a crown and everything. Lionel began to cry. No! Oh, my God. I love him so much. The chancellor and the prime minister and the nurse all came running to see what was the matter, and when they saw the book, they understood, and the chancellor said, You naughty little king, put him to bed, nurse, and let him think over what he's done. Perhaps, my lord, said the prime minister, we'd better first find out just exactly what he has done. Then Lionel, in floods of tears, said, Is a red dragon and is gone flying away to the hills and I am so sorry you know do forgive me (laughs) but the prime minister and the chancellor had other things to think of than forgiving Lionel you know maybe they shouldn't have made a five-year-old king how about that I'm just thinking how about that maybe that's not peak decision making these jerks I can't (laughs) (laughs) he was just being a boy he just wants to learn Butterfly in the sky, I can go twice as high. Take a look, it's in a book, a big-ass dragon. There you go. Avoiding copyright infringement. Probably not, but <laughs> you know what? Than, it was less than 17 seconds, right? I, I kind of hope Reading Rainbow tries to sue us for that, because that would almost certainly be good for our ratings. It's true, they, they would know who we are. <laughs> oh, speaking of... Um, dear listener, hi, how you doing? Uh, taking a break in the whatever portion of the story. I'm worried about Lionel. We'll get back to Lionel. Don't you, don't you worry. It'll be fine. Um, so, hey, listener, we, uh, here at Campfire Classics are creeping up on 10,000 downloads. Oh, yeah. It's, uh, it's, it's getting real close. Uh, I, Posted a couple of things on social media today when I realized that we're, we're I think we're um, like 500 downloads or something away. Yes. Um, so it's not it's not imminent, but we're getting there, and we could get there much quicker if you went ahead and shared Campfire Classics with a couple of people. Do um, it, do it, do just, it. Just like pick a couple of your favorite stories. Uh, if you don't know which episodes to recommend, 
uh, email me at 5050artsproduction at gmail.com and mm. ask for my recommendations because I definitely have a few favorites. Yeah, I'm sure you've got a greatest hits list. Yeah. Um, ooh. I've got a couple favorites just from the ones that we've done, and that's, you know, I started here relatively recently. Yeah. Um, maybe I'll put together a, a little, like... Best of. Best of. Yeah. Um, page or something. Anyway, um, tell people about the podcast because I really want to hit 10,000. I think Ooh. that would be fun. Um, so help us out, please. You're the only way we can do it. Help me, Obi-Wan Kenobi. You're my only hope. <laughs> Where was I? They won't forgive Lionel. Oh, yeah. They hurried off to consult the police and see what could be done. Everyone did what they could. They sat on committees and stood on guard and lay in wait for the dragon, but he stayed up in the hills and there was nothing more to be done. The faithful nurse, meanwhile, did not neglect her duty. Perhaps she did more than anyone else, for she slapped the king and put him to bed without his tea. And when it was dark, she would not give him a candle to read by. You are a naughty little king, she said, and nobody will love you. I'm fur- I'm furious. I'm so mad right now. You were so on Team Nurse like five minutes ago. Yeah, that was before she started abusing this <laughs> sweet little boy who just wants to learn and should not have been put in a position of power. <laughs> Nobody will love you. I love you, Lionel. I love you. <laughs> and also, like, maybe the dragon's just going to chill. I don't know. They're looking for the dragon. Like, he doesn't seem to be too nefarious yet. He just flew away and was like, I'm going to hang out in a cave somewhere. Yeah, maybe this is a story about, like, don't hate people just because they're different. Exactly. Maybe it's a story where Chekhov's dragon appears, but it never burns anybody to a crisp. <laughs> you never see it again. <laughs> Somehow I doubt it, but let's no, see. No, but Chekhov's slap has already reared its ugly head. Oh my God, it's crazy. Next day, the dragon was still quiet. Mm-hmm. Though the more poetic of Lionel's subjects could see the redness of the dragon shining through the green trees quite plainly. So Lionel put on his crown and sat on his throne and said he wanted to make some laws. And I need hardly say that though the Prime Minister and the Chancellor and the Nurse might have the very poorest opinion of Lionel's private judgment and might even slap him and send him to bed, the minute he got on his throne and set his crown on his head, he became infallible, which means that everything he said was right and that he couldn't possibly make a mistake. So when he said... There is to be a law forbidding people to open books in schools or elsewhere. (laughs) He had the support of at least half of his subjects and the other half, the grown-up half, pretended to think he was quite right. This is going to turn out great. Then he made a law that everyone should always have enough to eat. And this pleased everyone except the ones who had always had too much. Mm, Love it. Tax the rich. And when several other nice new laws were made and written down, he went home and made mud houses and was very happy. And he said to his nurse, people will love me now. I've made such a lot of pretty new laws for them. (laughs) But nurse said, don't count your chickens, my dear. You haven't seen the last of that dragon yet. Oh, boy. Now, the next day was Saturday. And in the afternoon, the dragon suddenly swooped down upon the common in all his hideous redness and carried off the soccer players, Uh, uh. umpires, goalposts, ball, and all. 
Then the people were very angry indeed, and they said, We might as well be a republic, after saving all these years to get his crown and everything. And wise people shook their heads and foretold a decline in the national love of sport. And indeed, soccer was not at all popular for some time afterward. <laughs> Suddenly became the most dangerous game in the country. Lionel did his best to be a good king during the week, and the people were beginning to forgive him for letting the dragon out of the book. After all, they said, soccer is a dangerous game, and perhaps it is wise to discourage it. <laughs> yeah, is good it, point. Soccer players, soccer players should be eaten by dragons. That's <laughs> right, just like... Right. Oh. Popular opinion held that the soccer players, being tough and hard, had disagreed with the dragons so much that he had gone away to some place where they only play Cat's Cradle and games that do not make you hard and tough. <laughs> All the same, Parliament met on the Saturday afternoon, a convenient time for most of the members would be free to attend to consider the dragon, but unfortunately... The dragon, who had only been asleep, woke up because it was Saturday, and he considered the parliament, and afterwards there were not any members left. <laughs> so they tried to make a new parliament, but being a member of parliament had somehow grown as unpopular as soccer playing, and no one would consent to be elected, so they had to do without a parliament. When the next Saturday came around, everyone was a little nervous, but the Red Dragon was pretty quiet that day and only ate an orphanage. <laughs> Wait, what is, what's the dragon's busy schedule during the week? Digesting. <laughs> oh, I love it. Week one, he had to digest a soccer team. Yeah. Week two, he had to digest parliament. Now he's going to go take a nap while he yeah. digests all the orphans. Oh my God. Oh, boy. All right. So I'm thinking the message isn't <laughs> about accepting people who are different, given that this dragon yeah, yeah, has that, now eaten like 40 people. Yeah, that was that was optimistic of me. Um, but it's going to be great. It's going to be great. <laughs> Lionel was very, very unhappy. He felt that it was his disobedience that had brought this trouble on the parliament and the orphanage and the soccer players, and he felt that it was his duty to try to do something. The question was, what? Hmm. The bluebird that had come out of the book used to sing very nicely in the palace rose garden, and the butterfly was very tame and would perch on his shoulder when he walked among the tall lilies. So Lionel saw that all the creatures in the Book of Beasts could not be wicked like the dragon, and he thought, suppose I could get another beast out who would fight the dragon. So he took the Book of Beasts out into the Rose Garden and opened the page next to the one where the dragon had been just a tiny bit to see what the name was. And he could only see Cora. But he felt the middle of the page swelling up thick with the creature that was trying to come out. Then it was only by putting the book down and sitting on it suddenly very hard that he managed to get it shut. Then he fastened the clasps with the rubies and turquoises in them and sent for the chancellor, who had been ill since Saturday, <laughs> and so had not been eaten with the rest of the parliament. <laughs> and he said, 
What animal ends in Cora? The chancellor answered, the Manticora, of course. What is he like? asked the king. He is the sworn foe of dragons, said the chancellor. He drinks their blood. He is yellow, with the body of a lion and the face of a man. I wish we had a few Manticoras here now. But the last died hundreds of years ago. Worse luck. Then the king ran and opened the book at the page that had Cora on it. And there was the picture, Manticora, all yellow with a lion's body and a man's face, just as the chancellor had said, and under the picture was written Manticora. In a few minutes, the Manticora came sleepily out of the book, rubbing its eyes with its hands and mewing piteously. (laughs) It seemed very stupid. (laughs) And when Lionel gave it a push and said, and fight the dragon too it put its tail between its legs and fairly ran away it's like my dogs (laughs) it went and hid behind the town hall and at night when the people were asleep it went around and ate all the pussycats in town oh no then it mewed more than ever, and on Saturday morning, when people were a little timid about going out because the dragon had no regular hour for calling, <laughs> the Manticora went up and down the streets and drank all the milk that was left in the cans at the doors for people's teas and ate the cans as well. Mm. And just when it had finished the very last little half pennyworth, which was short measure because the milkman's nerves were quite upset, <laughs> the red dragon came down the street looking for the manticora. It edged off when it saw him coming, for it was not at all the dragon-fighting kind, and seeing no other open door, the poor hunted creature took refuge in the general post office, and there the dragon found it, trying to conceal itself among the ten o'clock mail. <laughs> The dragon fell on the manticora at once, and the male was no defense. The mewings were heard all over the town. All the kitties and the milk the manticora had had seemed to have strengthened its mew wonderfully. (laughs) Then there was a sad silence, and presently the people whose windows looked that way saw the dragon come walking down the steps of the general post office spitting fire and smoke together with tufts of manticora fur and Mm. fragments of the registered letters. Mm -mm -mm. Things were growing very serious. However popular the king might become during the week, the dragon was sure to do something on Saturday to upset the people's loyalty. I thought Manticora was the sworn foe of dragons. Well, apparently he's just so skewed. Apparently he's just really bad at his job. (laughs) Oh, God. The dragon was a perfect nuisance for the whole of Saturday, except during the hour of noon. And then he had to rest under a tree or he would have caught fire from the heat of the sun. You see, he was very hot to begin with. (laughs) At last came a Saturday when the dragon actually walked to the royal nursery and carried off the king's own pet rocking horse. Then the king cried for six days, and on the seventh, he was so tired that he had to stop. He heard the bluebird singing among the roses and saw the butterfly fluttering among the lilies, and he said, Nurse, wait, 
my face, please. I'm not going to cry anymore. <laughs> Nurse washed his face and told him not to be a silly little king. Crying, said she, never did anyone any good yet. I don't know, said the little king. I seem to see better. And to hear better now that I've cried for a week. <laughs> now, nurse, dear, I know I'm right, so kiss me in case I never come back. I must try to see if I can't save the people. Oh, okay, if there are any little boys in their formative age listening, it is okay to cry. It is okay to have feelings. Boys can cry. They can have emotions. This is very important. Reading books is good. Reading books is good. I'm. <laughs> Although maybe don't demand that old men that you've just met kiss you mm -hmm. yeah probably not that one and probably don't ask people to slap you <laughs> different time <laughs> that's wait until you're older oh god <sighs> consent is everything people consent is important <clears throat> so off he went <laughs> The bluebird sang more sweetly than ever, and the butterfly shone more brightly, as Lionel once more carried the Book of Beasts out into the rose garden and opened it very quickly, so that he might not be afraid and change his mind. The book fell open wide, almost in the middle, and there was written at the bottom of the page, Hippogriff. And before Lionel had time to see what the picture was, there was a fluttering of great wings and a stamping of hooves and a sweet, soft, friendly neighing. And there came out of the book a beautiful white horse with long, long white mane and a long, long white tail. And he had great wings like swan's wings and the softest, kindest eyes in the world. And he stood there among the roses. Oh. The hippogriff rubbed its silky, soft, milky white nose against the little king's shoulder, and the little king thought, But for the wings, you are very like my poor dear lost rocking horse. Mm. And the bluebird's song was very loud and sweet. Then, suddenly, the king saw coming through the sky the great struggling, sprawling, wicked shape of the red dragon, and he knew at once what he must do. He caught up the book of beasts and jumped on the back of the gentle, beautiful hippogriff, and leaning down, he whispered in the sharp white ear, Fly, dear hippogriff, fly your very fastest to the pebbly waste. And when the dragon saw them start, he turned and flew after them with his great wings flapping like clouds at sunset, and the hippogriff's wide wings were snowy as clouds at moonrise. When the people in the town saw the dragon fly off after the hippogriff and the king, they all came out of their houses to look. And when they saw the two disappear, they made up their minds to the worst and began to think what they would wear for court morning <laughs> but the dragon could not catch the hippogriff the red wings were bigger than the white ones but they were not so strong and so the white winged horse flew away and away and away with the dragon pursuing till he reached the very middle of the pebble waste now the pebble waste is just like the parts of the seaside where there is no sand all round loose shifting stones, and there is no grass there, and no tree within a hundred miles of it. Ooh. 
Lionel jumped off the white horse's back in the very middle of the pebble waste, and he hurriedly unclasped the book of beasts and laid it open on the pebbles. Then he clattered among the pebbles in his haste to get back to the white horse and had just jumped on when up came the dragon. He was flying very feebly and looking around everywhere for a tree, for it was just on the stroke of twelve. The sun was shining like a gold guinea in the blue sky, and there was not a tree for a hundred miles. The white-winged horse flew around and around the dragon as he writhed on the dry pebbles. He was getting very hot indeed. Parts of him had even begun to smoke. He knew that he must certainly catch fire in another minute unless he could get under a tree. He made a snatch with his red claws at the king and hippogriff, but he was too feeble to reach them, and besides, he did not dare to overextend himself for fear he should get any hotter. It was then that he saw the Book of Beasts lying on the pebbles, open at the page with a dragon written on the bottom. He looked, and he hesitated, and he looked again, and then with one last squirm of rage, the dragon wriggled himself back into the picture and sat down under the palm tree, and the page was a little singed as he went in. Yay, the palm tree. As soon as Lionel saw that the dragon had really been obliged to go and sit under his own palm tree because it was the only tree there, he jumped off the horse and shut the book with a bang. Oh, hurrah, he cried. (laughs) No, we really have done it. And he clasped the book very tightly with the turquoise and ruby clasps. Oh, my precious hippogriff, he cried. You are the bravest, dearest, most beautiful... "'Hush!' whispered the hippogriff modestly. "'Don't you see that we are not alone?' (laughs) And indeed, there was quite a crowd round them on the pebbly waste. The prime minister and the parliament and the soccer players and the (gasps) orphanage and the manticora and the rocking horse and indeed everyone who had been eaten by the dragon. You see, it was impossible for the dragon to take them into the book with him. It was a tight fit even for one dragon, so of course, he had to leave them outside. Oh, I love the rules of this universe. (laughs) They all got home somehow and all lived happy ever after. (laughs) When the king asked the manticora where he would like to live, he begged to be allowed to go back into the book. I do not care for public life, (laughs) he said. Of course, he knew his way onto his own page, so there was no danger of his opening the book to the wrong page and letting out the dragon or anything. So he got back into his picture and has never come out since. That is why you will never see a manticora as long as you live except in a picture book. And of course, he left the kitties outside too because there was no room for them in the book and the milk cans too. The rocking horse begged to be allowed to go and live on the hippogriff's page of the book. I should like, he said, to live somewhere where dragons can't get at me. (laughs) Damn, the rocking horse has seen some things. (laughs) He's seen some shit. 
So the beautiful white-winged hippogriff showed him the way in, and there he stayed, till the king had him taken out for his great-great-great-great-grandchildren to play with. As for the hippogriff, he accepted the position of the king's own rocking horse, a situation left vacant by the retirement of the wooden one. And the bluebird and the butterfly sing and flutter among the lilies and roses of the palace garden to this very day. The end. That was more wholesome than I could have even hoped for. (laughs) (laughs) That was a very sweet change of pace from the last couple of stories. Yeah, I mean, you know, I sort of scanned it, but I I wanted it to be cold for both of us. I sort of scanned it was like, oh, yeah, this one looks like a shift in tone. But like, you know, it really was the voice. You made it with the the baby, (laughs) the baby boy voice. (laughs) It's so cute. (laughs) Well, didn't we have one where I ruined it with a voice? There was one. There was oh, one the mummy we, one. Yeah, where we didn't know whether the cousin was like a little girl or if she yeah. was like a full grown woman. And I, then it was I like. I made her too young. So yes, when it was her, her wedding, yes, it was creepy. Yes, yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. And we were like, wait, are they getting married? Okay, they're getting married to each other. This is a grown person. Yep. But for that time, that probably meant 13. Anyway, yeah. <laughs> it was nice that this story had none of that. Yeah. Well, I <laughs> a think. Little, a little bit of an upsetting, um, you know, the, the consequences of having a boy king, but. It all worked out fine in the end, so yeah. it's good. <laughs> yeah. So well, cute. and it turns out there were no consequences because even right. the people who got eaten by the dragon were just fine. Oh, God. And the moral cute. of the story is death is meaningless. Mm-hmm. Great. Life is eternal and Love nothing it. bad will ever happen to you. A perfect bedtime story. That's exactly <laughs> what I would want to hear read to me. <laughs> Moms, this one can double as a bedtime story for your kid. <laughs> Right? I don't know. Did we say anything bad in it? Um, not too much. There were a couple of references to, uh, you know, uh, a preteen making out with an old man. Oh, yeah. And just cut that that part. Out. Yeah, that's not getting cut. <laughs> that's not getting cut. That's some good shit. <laughs> um, I don't know. What What did you think of that one, listener? Did you like that? Did Did you Do you enjoy Edith Nesbitt? I do. I think she's really good. She was a cool lady. Yeah. Um, what do you think? More children's stories? Back to horror stories? Are you missing our murder mysteries? Mm. Maybe we should go back to science fiction. Or do you have something completely different that you'd like us to read? Mm -hmm. Like a uh, Western or maybe some old public domain romance novel or something. I haven't read a Western yet. I would like to. I'd like to do some of those accents. Something, something yeah. in there, yeah. I Maybe we'll so. find you, find you like an, uh, an O. Henry short or yeah, something. Yeah, that'd be nice. He likes to do the American West. Yeah. Um. Yeah. So, uh, thanks for tuning in. Um, I don't think I'm going to do a long denouement to this episode. Um, please just reach out and um. Tell us what you thought about the story and tell a friend about the pod. Definitely tell a friend about the podcast because we need the support because we're trying, we want like, we want to break that. We want to break that 10,000 listen yeah. barrier. The sooner, the better. Um, and if you, 
comment on social media or send us an email and let us know that you helped, I will give you a shout out on the podcast. Cool. And I hope that we have so many people do that that I regret making that promise. Yay, <laughs> make him eat his words. <laughs> um, but but go ahead and do that. You can find us on all the social medias. You can email us at 5050artsproduction at gmail.com. And when you do that this week, please Please use this week's secret passphrase when you reach out. And this week's secret passphrase is Chekhov's slap. Oh. That might also be the title of the episode. I haven't decided yet, but oh, I think that's pretty good. Yeah. It's both literary and current yeah. events relevant. Right. Um, we'll see. Maybe I'll change my mind. But you already know what the title of the episode is because you looked at it before you listened, I assume. Mm-hmm. Um, time is funny. Time is money, <laughs> which means money is funny. But since money is the root of all evil, then humor is the root of all evil. Well, that just can't be right. So funny is nah. the devil. Nah, the math ain't mathing. <laughs> I love to laugh. <laughs> then you love Satan. <gasps> okay. If you say so. If you say so. <laughs> Um. Cool. Anything else before we sign off? That was a lovely time. Thank you for your excellent voice acting. <laughs> a pleasure as always. <laughs> and until next week, this has been Campfire Classics, where we try to read those books that look really good on your shelf. Yeah. yeah. Really bad. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I felt a little. I think my tongue got a little drunk. Yeah.